Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Joanna Griffiths, founder and CEO of bra and underwear brand, NYX. Unlike most apparel brands, NYX has seen its sales over the last couple of months top projections, and it even pulled off a successful swimwear category launch. I wanted to ask Joanna all about her brand's positive start to the year, as well as how it's responded to new consumer demands and expectations in the last few weeks. Welcome, Joanna. Thanks so much for having me. I feel like I sold you short with saying uh, bra and underwear. Now you're doing so much more. But um, yes, evolution, evolution. <laughs> it's okay. It's, it started with just leak-proof underwear. So I'm happy that you're saying bra and underwear. It's a, it's a good start for me, at least. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, my gosh. Well, let's jump in. Um, first of all, it's, I mean, not your normal, I guess, June, Monday, of course. I, if I if I saw it correctly, um, you two uh, maybe celebrated Juneteenth on Friday for the first time. Was that a first for the brand? And talk to me about how you um, tackled that. It was a first for the brand. Yeah, especially um, we're actually based in Toronto, Canada. So we were really following the suit of our American counterparts and American customers. And um, so we did a couple things to celebrate. Uh, we went silent on all of our digital paid marketing. So no emails, no paid social, um, to kind of make space for bigger conversations. Um, we kicked off our DEI, uh, training internally. So diversity, equity, and inclusion training and gave a rundown of what our team can expect over the next, um, three months, which is really immersive. And then we actually finished the morning um, with a company-wide meditation. So we're taking like a very holistic approach to all of this. But we had um, a meditation leader who really specializes in um, meditation for healing and for restorative kind of space specifically around race. And then we um, took the afternoon off. So it was a lot of learning followed by um, a break. Amazing. How large is your team? How many people were in this meditation? We are 85 people. So, um, and more than half participated. So it was, it was a pretty good turnout. Amazing. Talk to me about this training. Uh, what is all involved? Yeah. So, you know, um, we're working with an amazing, um, woman named Avery Francis. You can find her on Instagram. Um, and her company is called the Bloom Collective. And we're working with her on a few different fronts. So the first part is to really collect information, to make space for storytelling and experience sharing. Um, so that's what we're kicking off this week. We're doing four sessions. Um, it's a mix of company-wide and then sessions just for our BIPOC employees. Um, then we're moving into training. And because we're... Um, because we're a brand that touches people on so many different levels, there's training as it pertains to, okay, how do we, um, how do we want to lead as a company and how do we want to, um, make sure that we're treating one another and being respectful and what are our hiring practices? But we're also doing specific training for our retail employees or our customer, um, empowerment team employees who are externally facing, who also might encounter situations, um, that are racist or comments. And so how do they handle that? How do they, stand up for their team members? How do they make sure that they can um, navigate their way through those situations? Um, and then leadership training as well. Oh my gosh. You moved fast. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also some some support on recruiting um, as well for some key roles that we still, that we have open as an organization. So it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time. Oh my gosh. What have you found or what is going to be your approach for, I guess, changing up the recruitment process? This came up in a discussion last week with 
uh, brand leaders and somebody asked that question, how are you going to go, go about um, recruiting for a more more diversity in-house? And literally, it was like crickets. Nobody had an answer yeah. about how they're going to go about it. I don't know if I have the right answer, so um, I'll just tell you how we're approaching it. <laughs> yes. I welcome criticism or feedback, <laughs> as always. Um but what we're doing is um, to kick things off, we're specifically working with this woman, Avery Francis, and her company, Bloom. And we've actually paused on a couple of senior leadership roles. She's going to help us go out and actively recruit candidates and at least make sure that we are seeing like the most diverse, best possible group of candidates, that they're feeling welcome and, and um, sort of engaged through the whole process. And um, our belief is that if we start filling up some of those more senior roles, if we start adding to our HR team and, and really learn from someone whose sole business it is, is to do diversity, equity, and inclusion hiring, that will then um, set up an, an ongoing infrastructure that we can continue to manage internally. But it's, it's not something... We, we felt like to move at the pace that we want to move at, we needed to get someone who does this for a living and who's an expert and, and to learn from them. Yes. Tell me about the investment involved because it's not just hiring an expert. It's also, uh, you know, your team's time. Um, talk about, yes, what, I guess, <laughs> what is going into this and also why is it worth it? Obviously, but tell me. Yeah. So there's, um, there's an investment as far as the, um, the training and the making space for healing and the listening piece goes, um, which is like certainly significant. But I think when you break it down on a per employee basis and you realize just how important it is, um, it starts to not, not feel significant. Um, and so, um, so there's, there's an allocation towards that piece. Um, there's an allocation towards the recruiting piece and obviously getting help on open roles. Um, and then we also made an external commitment of a hundred thousand dollars. And so we, we really felt like our internal commitment had to at a minimum match the external commitment so that it was, um, sustainable and, and sort of, um, really holding ourselves accountable for the path forward. Yes, I think that was very clear on your social media channels, particularly Instagram. Um, did you find it necessary over these last couple of weeks when it's been, um, it's a touchy time, you could say the wrong thing. Did you find yourself um, maybe taking more ownership of communication that was going out there, maybe stepping in more than you normally would? Yes and no. Um, so I felt like much like I did when COVID first first started, that as the leader of the company, I really had to stay up and stand up and say, okay, this is the game plan. You know, you're going to do this and you're going to do this and you're going to talk about this and you're going to talk about this and you're not going to talk about this. <laughs> and, and sort of really, um, because in that moment, it can be very challenging to figure out how do you work? Yeah. Um, and so I felt like someone had to come in and take a very holistic approach as to how we were going to, how we were going to approach this. At Nix, we always choose to approach subjects. Um, especially challenging ones from a position of storytelling. And so certainly for our social media, that's the direction that we went in. We said, let's take, um, you know, dozens of women from the Knicks community that we've worked with for years that we love and respect who are sharing really important personal stories right now and use our platform to amplify their stories and ideally educate and inform and create connection through their stories. And so in that regard, we're not just, Nix is never just one voice. We are always the combination of voices that reflect our community. And so that actually makes it a lot less intimidating to decide what it is to say, 
because you're simply holding a megaphone up to one member of your community and then moving it on to the next and moving it on to the next. So I didn't look at every post and I didn't, I read every comment, certainly, yeah. because it's a scary time. I'm not going to lie. Like it's, it's, uh, you want to make sure that the messages you're being put out, you're putting out are well received. You want to make sure that your um, community and channels aren't becoming a breeding ground for hate, um, but instead are, are being used for education and support. Um, so didn't look at everything that went out, but certainly looked at everything from the comments perspective and to see how things were received. Yes. How are they being received? And if it's if it's going well, you're going gonna to do more of this. What, what's been the feedback? Yeah, the feedback's been really, really positive. I think because it's so in tune with how we've always behaved as a brand, we've always showcased our customers in our photo shoots. We've always placed a very large emphasis on um, diversity in terms of the people that we sh- that we choose to photograph and work with because they are our community, they are our customers. And then we've always taken this approach of um, sharing personal stories. So we made a shift, I think, in early 2018, um, specifically on Instagram, to always have the woman that we were showcasing in our marketing speak for themselves and to not have it be about the product and right. actually to have the product kind of be the final afterthought. And so because we've taken that approach for so long, what people were seeing was very, very consistent. They were seeing stories from faces that they recognized from our campaigns already. And if anything, it was just um, a lot of support and encouragement and acknowledgement um, versus versus anything else. That's interesting. Tell, talk a little bit about the transition in marketing Um maybe in March uh, when coronavirus hit, because what you're saying really um, mirrors what I've been hearing in terms of like what you've been doing and not pushing product. Um, I feel like that was a huge flip for a lot of brands to say, we're not going to talk about product right now. We're going to create lifestyle content or this and that. Um, but did, you, did your approach change at all? Well, I think not as much as other places and probably because we we always have a balance around talking about product. And even when we are talking about product, we're not really talking often about product, if that makes sense. So even when we're showing one a member of our community in our, in our underwear, we're placing all of the emphasis on the caption in their voice and the latter emphasis on the product itself. So I think that we're very comfortable with that as a brand. We're very comfortable in entering into spaces, be it, you know, what work we've done before around um, fertility or this massive life after birth project that we did last year. Like we're very, very comfortable at using storytelling to build connection, um, at talking, like really sharing with our community first and selling second. So it wasn't like this knee jerk reaction. Um, The only, the only place that we had pause was, um, you know, I think a lot of brands went out to their community and said, what do you want to hear from us? Yep. And we know the role that we play in our customers' lives. We know the connection that we that we mean to them. And so instead of saying, what do we want to, what do you want to hear from us? The first thing that we did was we just checked in and said, hey, is everybody like, are you okay? And um, we used this post that just had like five different heart emojis um, that either said like feeling great. I don't think anyone, um, put that one down <laughs> all the <laughs> way, all, all the way down to like, I'm not doing so well. And I would love to talk to someone. And we got like 
thousands of comments to that post. And anyone who was saying, I'm not feeling okay, I want to talk to someone, we either we personally reached out to them as a brand. But what was so amazing was the number of women within our community that also would comment and say, I'm DMing you. Like, let's have a call. Like, are you okay? And they started awesome. to support one another. Um, and that was a, like a really beautiful thing to see. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. You mentioned that you didn't have to, you know, ask what they wanted to hear from you. Talk about, I guess, the relationship building uh, prior to, to this year or um, to early this year. Um, what has gone into that? Why do they know you so well? We've been so intimately personal, I think. Um, so I think if we think, if I think about Nix and I think about where we started, which was um, in 2013 with leak-proof underwear and talking about categories and topics that like were very, very taboo at the time and doing it in a way that created space for people where they felt comfortable and they felt they wanted to engage with us. We have this long history um, that is, it's even ingrained in our company values around um, being a mirror to the world. So having the, con- the timely conversations that our customers want us to have, um, approaching those conversations as a, from a place of lightness and community and, and inclusivity and um, not being afraid. And so the not being afraid part for better or for worse, oftentimes if we're doing something really tricky or we're, we're approaching a challenging topic, um, as the founder and leader of our company, I'll be the one that that talks first. Yep. So when we launched our Faces of Fertility campaign back in 2008, I was the person who spoke first. I said, I had a miscarriage. It happened on Mother's Day. This was a really, really hard experience for me. I know this is a hard experience for others. Um, we've created a resource. You know, here's 50 plus stories that you can read about that hopefully you'll connect with. And let's keep sharing more. Um, Same thing with life after birth. One of the first images was a picture of me, like horrible photo. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Never. (laughs) Horrible photo. They're always horrible photos. Um, (laughs) And um, so I've, I've very much taken that approach building the company is that like, if we want people to engage in these conversations, we, we sometimes have to speak first. We have yeah. to create the safe space. We have to create the community. We have to build the trust. And um, trust is like earned, not granted. And it takes years and years and years. And one of the things that I've always felt about Nix is that our most valuable asset is our authenticity as a brand. And it's the only thing you can't buy. And I yeah. think when we headed into COVID and we we headed into this new world where the aspirational things didn't matter as much because we couldn't go anywhere or we only had what we had around us, um, so many brands struggled with how do I be authentic in this moment? Yep. And um, I think the ones that came into it from a place of authenticity, like even the Patagonias of this world, the steps that they took were so fast because they were so inherent to their brand DNA that they didn't even have to really think about it. It's that concept that doing the right thing is always the right thing and moving forward with it and knowing that your customers and community will follow. And I think that's been like a very, very interesting thing to watch as a brand leader and a marketer myself is is seeing the clear path of, of where people fall. 
Yes. Those conversations and the content that your your audience is consuming and getting to know you, is that mostly, would you say like 90% on Instagram or what's the breakdown? Is there a con- also a content site or where where are they meeting you? Yeah. So we, um, we have an in-house um, content and creative team. So we make everything in-house um, with the exception of, you know, we'll work with freelance photographers or videographers, but um, Instagram is definitely our main platform. And then we have an ambassador group that's um, about 250 so people um, yeah. as that are our core ambassadors. We have a larger ambassador group that's a couple thousand people, but our core ambassadors also have a Facebook group and we do um, bi-weekly Zoom calls with them. And they're, they're a really great litmus test for us. So we'll kind of flow past them. Hey, we're thinking about talking about this thing. What do you guys, what do you think? Or, Hey, we're thinking about this product. What do you think? And, and so they're amazing too. Were you zooming before zoom was a thing? (laughs) Oh, selectively, selectively, but not, not to this extent. Absolutely (laughs) not. Absolutely not. (laughs) So you've got your ambassadors, you're leaning on Instagram with, um, is that also, um, soaking up your kind of marketing spend? Um, what's happening in terms of digital marketing? What, What are you spending on today? Yeah, sure. And I should mention in real life things as well, because that was a very big part of who we were, although it is, it is currently not a part of who we are. So, so where do we spend our dollars? Um, we spend the bulk of it on, on paid digital. So, um, like paid social is a really big part of it. Um, we've seen phenomenal success on TV. So, um, we started TV advertising last October. Um, we had an amazing spot. Um, called Age Doesn't Matter was the first lingerie spot that exclusive that exclusively features women over the age of 50. Um, yeah. So 13 women ages 50 to 81. So fun. So like uplifting. And and we created that right at the beginning of March. So we've had really um fantastic TV creative rolling into into COVID, which was certainly helpful for us. Um, and then the other places that we invest are in PR and, um, in, in real life experiences, a lot of gifting, so much gifting of products, <laughs> so much seating, um, and, um, the occasional out of home, like the occasional, we sort of do pulses on other things, but in terms of always on, those are the, the channels that are always on. Yeah. What are you finding about gifting? Like do a lot of, does that often result in user generated content? Do a lot of women want to photograph themselves in their skivvies? <laughs> What's happening? Yeah. Well, it's harder for us. It's certainly harder for us. I mean, we, we also strategically think about entering into new categories specifically for that reason. So swim is a great example of that. It's never going to be like a key, key sales driver for us, but it's one of the few items that our customers wear outside um, where you see the product. And so it's great for word of mouth. It's great for social sharing, for content. Um, so as a brand, we have to think about what product categories do we enter into? So it's more shareable than, than maybe others. But we have also very much become the brand that women feel comfortable sharing pictures of in their underwear, irregardless of, of size or how they're feeling about themselves. Um, and so that's been, uh, that's been a, a pretty, tremendous thing to watch over the past couple of years is to really be ingrained in this this movement that's happening. Great. You're kind of lucking out with the TV spot timed with timed with everyone sitting at home and talk about your categories, which are the only, you know, oh. categories that are really resonating right now or selling. Um, can you talk about what you've seen in terms of sales? I would think probably the initial dip in March, but what's been happening since then? Yeah, for sure. So um, you're right. We got very, very lucky. Um, 
And I say lucky because I think that um, a lot of people got unlucky. And it doesn't mean that they don't run a great business or they didn't have an amazing strategy or things wouldn't have gone otherwise if this hadn't happened. Um, so for us, uh, we sell only wireless bras. So um, that's a huge win <laughs> for Nix in the long run because I think that this has just accelerated the movement towards wireless bras. Um, we sell loungewear, also a top performer. We sell sports bras, really great for exercising and working out, which became a top performer as people were prioritizing um, physical fitness during COVID. We sell leak-proof underwear, which is great as you know, drugstores are running out of toilet paper and tampons and pads. Um, and then we also launched swimwear, which we didn't think was going to go well, but went well. So that's the that's kind of the that I don't get it one, but I will, t- will take it. Um, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, th- th- things have been great. We had, um, we had our best month in April. We made the decision to do an, an online warehouse sale. We were supposed to do a physical warehouse sale. Um, that completely blew our expectations. We had 35,000 people shopping on the site at the same time within the first five minutes, 5,000 people actively checking out within the first five minutes. And if you can think about what that would mean in a physical space, it just would never happen. So that that was a really great event for us. Um, and then we headed into May and we're kind of wondering how we could top the April that we've had. And we had our, our best month in May. We're up 135% over last year. Um, and so we're one of the few brands now whose biggest concern is how do we make sure that we get more stock and how do we keep keep, keep things moving and going? What is selling now? Is it continued to be the new everything? Yeah, it's just everything, which is so like I think I think there is a really interesting broader thing that's happening right now, and because shopping habits have changed so dramatically, if you are a brand that people trust and they know that you have like great shipping, easy returns, amazing customer service, and they've ordered from you before we're seeing a real appetite to continue to order new and different things. And so for the first time at NYX, I'm like, we all of a sudden have permission to play into all these other areas that I didn't think we had permission to play in simply because we have brand trust and our customers know that we make good products. And if they don't like it, they know they can send it back really easily. And so I do think that we're going to see this acceleration where over the next year, that the life, the next legacy brands are being created in real time. And I believe that NYX is one of them based on what we're seeing. And it's um, exciting and terrifying all at the same time. (laughs) Yes. I I wouldn't doubt it. Not going to (laughs) lie. Your hottest month in quarantine. What did that mean? Were you hiring? Were you, how were you like picking that up? Yeah, we've, we've, we've started hiring again. Um, we've, we've rolled out virtual fits that have been really, really great for us. So we've seen a lot of projects that we wanted to do that took a back seat, be accelerated to now have a front seat. Um, so we have just started hiring again over the past four weeks. Um, we were cautious. I mean, we, every day is a new day. The world is changing every single day. And so, um, you know, we're, a company that was was built through initially through bootstrapping and through being really conscious around cash. And so we brought that into COVID and um, are continuing to exercise that. But um, we do have open roles and um, encourage people to check them out. Yes. 
And another thing, the right place at the right time, I, I actually didn't realize, I always reference like Sarah Flint when thinking about a brand that flipped from entirely wholesale to entirely uh, direct to consumer. That happened in like 2016? Yes, yes, yes. exactly. So um, that's exactly right. When I started NYX, our, our whole focus was on wholesale. And I spent my life at trade shows. And doing trunk shows, I did trunk shows at every Equinox location in the United States, I think, and um, still couldn't work out somehow, even though I was at the gym every day. I don't, I don't get how that was happening. <laughs> Whatever, you're busy. <laughs> yeah, you know. So spent three years doing that, and then made the the really scary decision in the fall of 2016 to pull out of over 700 retail locations across North America, and to basically cut our revenue. In, in more than half um, and start over. And uh, that required a whole new team. It required new partners everywhere. And um, thankfully, I had a lot of energy at the time to do it. I think as a founder or a brand leader, you're always checking in, do I have the energy to see this through? Yeah. I think a lot of founders are asking themselves that right now. Do I have the energy to keep going? Um, and so at that point in time, I had a lot of energy and um we, we transitioned to be 100% online. We really figured it out. We went through that transition that so many companies are now going through. And so I feel I feel for those brands. I yes. absolutely feel for them. But um, I also know that it's possible. I know that you can figure out how to reach your customers. You can figure out how to provide best-in-class service. You can, um, you, can, you can really own that relationship. And the expectations change. Like... Do you know what I mean? The expectation of a brand that sells direct is you're not just a brand. You're also a content company and a media company and you are like available all the time and you're all of those no things. Big no big deal. <laughs> um, but most people were that for their wholesale partners anyways. Right. So it's, you know, like it's just a different kind of work. Um, but we made that change. We grew just under 4,000% in three years when we made that decision. And, um, it's been, uh, it's been a whirlwind. Um, and it feels like the last couple of months have been another kind of like yes. big, big whirlwind. Um, but I feel great that I have such an amazing team now. Was there already, was what kind of pushed you to DTC other than kind of seeing other brands maybe oh. doing it and seeing their success? Was that friction already there with wholesale partners where maybe they weren't providing the experience that, uh, they weren't working you, with you to provide an experience that really, yeah, spoke to your that, brand? That's so great. That's a great question. Um, so ultimately what pushed me to make that choice was twofold. Um, the first one was we'd done a Kickstarter campaign and sold more in 30 days than I did in the first three years of the business. So that was the, like the business kind of slap in the face that this was something that could work. And then, um, the second piece was that, uh, we, we've been a size inclusive brand since the very beginning. And, um, a lot of our wholesale partners were not interested in carrying our size assortment. So we were very much a, um, we weren't the kind of brand that you would discover in stores, if you can imagine, because we're intimates. We don't take up like a lot of floor space. We're like usually in the corner somewhere. So most of our sales were us pushing customers to the store. And unfortunately, what would happen is our customers would go, they'd drive to two to three locations. They'd be told that the store didn't carry their size and they would have this really, really negative experience. And so ultimately the negative experience outweighed all of the positives around that 
distribution network. And we found ourselves being very inconsistent um, and wanting to kind of own that relationship end to end. So that made us make the decision to, to, to change directions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was the plan to um, be, I guess, a certain percentage online, a certain percentage retail? What, what's happening with your, your retail store, I guess, plans, <laughs> goals, <laughs> aspirations? We were just talking about this this morning. So we, we intentionally put on our, our OKRs for the rest of this year, strategically open or not open retail stores because we yeah. can't put a number against it. <laughs> we just have to be thoughtful around it. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly when we started 2020, we just opened our first two retail stores. Both of them were doing very, very well. And we had every intention to be rolling out another like five to 10 over the next 18 months, basically, was the plan. Um, that's obviously being put on hold. We'll be reopening our stores in the next two weeks. So we'll see how that goes um, initially by appointment only. But um, for now, we're on hold. And it's just too early to know or to tell. Um, and so I loved our stores and I will continue to love our stores. Um, as someone who craves like feedback from the customers, reading the closing store notes every night was like a dream, you know? Um, and so now I'm getting that through our virtual fits and whatnot, but, um, we're, we're being cautious at the moment. Um, and I think again, we got lucky. We had, we had bids in on a whole bunch of different leases. We lost, I think two or three leases all within a week at the beginning of March. And then, so grateful we hadn't signed those. How are you lucking out? I know. I <laughs> Go, know. That's amazing. I know. I know. So good. Um, so you were not going to uh, appointment only. Uh, any other kind of, I keep asking brands, like I'm trying to find some sort of a secret I don't strategy for reopening that would maybe help to get folks back into stores other than, you know, saying, is there anything that you're doing to provide more reassurance other than maybe you're saying how many people will be in the store from your team will be wearing masks, will be cleaning. Is there anything kind of outside the box? I think appointments kind of interesting, but anything else? Yeah. The appointment thing is the only thing that we're doing. So we'll see what the demand looks like for that. Um, and then we'll monitor kind of accordingly, but, um, it at least gives us a really good sense of traffic. It allows us to clean in between, um, appointments, um, provide a really great level of personal service without it being overwhelming because, um, certainly, um, we're, we're all, we're all street front locations in neighborhoods. And so, um, in the summer months, at least like History, like the traffic can become quite overwhelming. And so this, this at least gives us a way to, to make sure that we're providing a great level of service. I think that's it. I think that's yeah. the only thing you can do honestly is, is, is make, is make sure that the customer feels comfortable. But I went shopping for the first time this weekend. Um, have you gone yet, Jill? Has this happened or? I'm uh, the biggest wimp. I have yet to go, but okay. yeah, I'm, I'm an in-person IRL kind of shopper. I need to get out. <laughs> yes. What was it like? So, well, I was a neighbor. It was like a very small community store and, um, wore a mask and did all those things. But anything I tried on, I bought because I just felt so badly that, the independent store owner was going to have to steam it or like, so I'm, I'm very interested truly to see what happens to conversion in terms of, because yeah. even though it wasn't perfect, I was like, I'm just going to take this because this has been a rough go for this store owner. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I know nicer if, than most <laughs> people are going to be like, take it. 
No, thank you. <laughs> so, we'll so yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I, I don't think that there's. I don't think there's a perfect answer. But I do think that people still are going to want to shop in person in some way. Do you think it's different for each brand? Do you think that maybe because you're going to want to test your own customer's appetite for yeah, physical a physical store? Do you? Would you consider maybe going back to pop-ups if you ever did pop-ups to kind of, yeah, just dabble a little bit? Yeah. Every lease that we've signed, we've we've started short-term and then with the option to extend long-term. So um, we put in the, the build-out commitment as if we're going to stay because I really, <laughs> I do believe that putting your best face forward is so important, um, but with the option to walk away. So we'll certainly keep approaching stores in that way. Um, and that's, that's that's the way we've always done it and it's the way that we'll continue to do it. Yeah. Got it. That makes sense. Let's mm-hmm. talk future and then we will wrap it up. Um, category expansion has been happening. Have you had a new category launch per year about average or is that a little much? No. We, yeah, we probably had one to two category launches a year. I think that's yeah. fair to say. Um, we now play in just about every category that we want to play in. We have one more coming up at the end of this year. Um, but... It's all about going deeper into the categories that we're already playing in and using feedback to make sure we have the best assortment possible. Um, So that's how we're thinking about the future. And um, when your product development is driven by user feedback, which ours is, there's always ways to be better, whether it's like improving on existing products or bringing to market new pieces that people feel like are missing from your assortment. um, There's there's always ways to be better. But um, I'd say the one category that we are like, thinking about more than I would have before, because I mentioned that um, permission to play in new spaces is definitely the activewear category. So we do sports bras. We've nailed the hardest, most technical product to make right. and um, also make really great seamless products. So the, the, the to test the expansion into leggings and other activewear category products, I think makes sense to do for us right now. And if it doesn't work, like what, what just... It's a capsule collection, right? If it exactly. doesn't work, it's a capsule. You can <laughs> so one change time. your mind. You can so one, you it's a one-time thing. And if it works, then then fantastic. It's a business unlock. Um, so uh, we'll we'll definitely go in with that approach. Um, yes, and to wrap it up on the on the topic of diversity, are you do you find that um, um, your size within the size spectrum, maybe those that were no were not catered to before by other brands, um, those that are the largest or those that are the smallest are maybe the best sellers. And also with kind of shades, as you diver- diversify your shade range, are those that are harder to come by um, selling best? So size is certainly yes. Um, we've become quite well known for for wireless bras that are great for women with larger cups. And so 70% of our sales are in a D cup or higher. Um, so certainly seeing um, people gravitate towards those products. Um, our underwear and other products, we go up to a 3X at the moment. We're looking to expand that further. But that breakdown's very, very, it's very evenly distributed. So, um, so that's quite interesting to see. We don't really over index in one area. Um, and then our, our skin tone collection, same thing, quite evenly distributed. Um, not really, not really indexing in, in one, one, one hue or another. So, um, interesting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, it's working, whatever you're doing, Joanna, thank you so much for being here. This was great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the discussion. That's all for this episode, which was produced by Pierre Bienname. 
Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Don't forget that we're offering Glossy Podcast listeners 20% off an annual Glossy Plus membership, giving you unlimited access to fashion and beauty stories. Use the code podcast at checkout. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. 